hello, everybody. I am so excited about this episode of Coach's Corner because I have a very longtime friend and colleague with me, Lindsay Pollock. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for being here today. Lindsay and I know each other. Gosh, how did we even meet the first time, Lindsay? I'm like spacing for a second. I was actually just hoping you were going to say what it was because I can't remember either. Just long time. Oh, I know. Diane Danielson introduced us That's and we right. had our first date in New York City. And I remember sitting by a window and meeting you for the first time. That's it. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I'm glad your memory kicked in. It's just, it, I just feel like I've known you forever. So Lindsay and I got to know each other because we were both 20 something authors and we were in the 20 something, it was called Gen Y and soon to be called Millennial Space. And we just like, connected on so many levels. We both were extreme overachievers trying to trying to find ourselves among this kind of transitionary period of our 20s and just became very, very passionate about speaking and writing for the 20-something experience, now the millennial experience. And I know that a lot of people in your 20s, early 30s listen to this show, so I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. And if you're not in your 20s, 30s, I think you'll still enjoy it because, first of all, Lindsay's amazing. I'm going to tell you more about her in a second. But second of all, the things we're going to be talking about, I think, really apply throughout our life. You know, so many things that I wish I would have known in my 20s still apply in a lot of ways now. So a little bit about who Lindsay is in terms of what she does and how she expresses in the world. Lindsay is widely recognized as the leading voice on millennials in the workplace. Often called a translator, Lindsay advises both young professionals looking to succeed in today's work environment and the organizations that want to recruit, retain, and market to them. And Lindsay and I have done lots of fun speaking gigs together, like we did a lot of stuff for Cosmo and we're on a panel together for Ad Week just talking about the millennial mindset. She is also the New York Times bestselling author of Becoming Boss, New Rules for the Next Generation of Leaders, and Getting from college to career. She speaks all over the world. In fact, she just got back from London because she was doing a big speaking gig with Estee Lauder. She's been on lots of media channels and is just really an expert and loves what she does. I think that that's one of the things I enjoy most about talking to Lindsay when we talk about millennials and the work that we do. She just has such, such a passion for being an advocate for millennials. I think millennials get kind of a bad rap and Lindsay sets them straight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thank you again for being here. It's always fun to play with you. Always fun to play with you too. I'm so happy to be here. And for those who are not in their 20s and 30s, like you mentioned, I'm not either anymore. I'm turning 42 very soon. So welcome. And I think age is definitely a mindset. And we can talk about that. (laughs) Totally. Okay. Yeah. I'm making a note of that age as a mindset. Talk about that. So before we started recording, you and I were chatting just a little bit. And I asked you what you love talking about the most. And the answer came easily. You said, I love talking about what I wish I would have known in my 20s and early 30s. So let's just start there. What do you wish you would have known? That's a great opening. Um, The reason I got into this work in the first place is I kind of target the beginning of my career when I was an RA, a resident advisor in college my senior year. And I just loved being a senior and telling the freshmen Uh, who are my advisees, what I wish I had done differently, what I wish I had known when I was starting out and telling them all of my mistakes so that they wouldn't make the same mistakes. And when I graduated, 
that led me to writing my first book that you mentioned, Getting from College to Career, where I just sort of wanted to write down every single thing I had learned and answer all the questions I had had to help somebody else have it a little bit easier. And I think that's really been the theme through all of my work. And you know, you, you get these kind of themes, as I'm sure you do in your business, and I'm sure they lead to ideas for your amazing podcast, which thank you, Christine, I'm so honored to be part of. I'm a huge fan and listener. You get these themes that come up, and one of the things that particularly young women, um, college students, recent grads, um, entry-level professionals have come up to me a lot to say is that sometimes in my speeches about personal brand or career development or job hunting or social media, I've said something to them that they hadn't heard before. And they almost, there's almost sort of a sense that they wish people were being more honest with them. And I think the workplace, whether it's political correctness or uh, people just being too busy, a lot of times we're not really doing that informal coaching and apprenticeship that I think used to happen a long time ago. And people are scared to tell someone maybe that their outfit is inappropriate or their email didn't take the right tone. Um, so I'm really kind of collecting stories of those types of things because sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And I'm really trying to kind of collect all of those thoughts because I definitely didn't know what I didn't know when I started my career 15, 18 years ago. So going back when you were starting, if you could go back 18 years, what was your mindset? What was your approach to your career then? Do you remember? Well, I think there's a really unwritten or not talked about transition from being a student to being a professional. And when you're a student, no matter what age you graduate or if you're just in that mindset, it's really about you how you write a paper, how you express your ideas, um, how you uh, think through challenges. And in business in particular, really in any organization, you have to think about how you are impacting your customers or clients or colleagues. So I used to spend a lot of time focused on whether I was developing, um, if I was writing the best document sort of using myself as the audience. And, And just to take writing, for example, because I talk about that a lot, You know, I might write a beautifully crafted, well-worded, clever email when in reality the other person would have really preferred that I just did short, concise bullet points that got to the point of what I wanted to say. So one of the things I find myself saying a lot is you really have to communicate for the other person to receive your message. Whether you're interviewing for a job, you have to communicate the way the interviewer wants to know things. So it's not about how great you are as a job applicant, it's how great a fit you are for the job that they're trying to fill. If I'm selling myself as a speaker for a conference, I can't talk about how great I am or how much I want to do the gig. I have to talk about how my content will impact the people in the audience. So it's really taking, uh, rather than what's in it for me, the WIFM uh, proposal, it's really thinking about what's in it for the other person. And that's a very different view than we tend to have as students. Does that make sense? Totally. And my question is, how do you know? You know, I know you said, talk about how you'd be a fit for the company, but if you're just starting out and you don't have that much experience interacting with people outside of, you know, your friends and family and people in your sphere of influence, how do you kind of know how to communicate to someone else? So that's where your student hat actually serves you well, which is doing your homework. And I am a self-professed nerd and goody two-shoes, and my husband and I joke how much he would have hated me in college because I was the nerd in the front row doing the extra credit assignments. But do your research. 
follow companies on Twitter that you want to work for and see how they talk about themselves. Talk to as many people you can at a potential client or employer's uh, company so that you know the language that they speak. And finally, ask people. One of my favorite books is uh, The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins, and he talks about your first 90 days in a new job, whether you're the boss or the employee. And he says, have a direct conversation with the person you're going to be communicating with and say, what are your pet peeves? What's your email style? Do you like it if I pop into your office for a meeting, or would you rather that I schedule a direct appointment? And one of the ways I implement that in regular life is if I meet somebody at an event and they give me their card or we have a nice conversation, I will always say, what's the best way to get in touch with you? When is a good time to reach out? Do you prefer email or Twitter or phone calls? People will tell you what they're looking for. And I think rather than being weird or awkward, I think that's actually very respectful and smart to ask people directly how they want to be communicated with, mostly because this world today has so many options that we didn't have 18 years ago. Now there's just so many ways to communicate that it's worth asking. I love that. That's great advice. So let's shift ahead a little bit to you're in a job. I have get a lot of callers on the show, 20s, 30s, 40s, but especially in their 20s who don't like what they're doing. They don't like their career. They don't like their job. They want to do something else. Sometimes they know what that is. Sometimes they don't have clarity about it, but they're having a major expectation hangover when it comes to their first job or second job or even kind of, you know, maybe it's like the second job in their first career track. What advice do you have for those those folks? So look, if it's absolutely horrifically awful and toxic, get out. And and one of the advantages you have today is that I don't think you have to put in a year anymore. I mean, when I was starting out, if you didn't put in a year in a job, you were, you know, just completely blackballed from anywhere else. So if something is horrible, you have my permission to get out. If it's not horrible, I would say, are you still learning? Can you make something of this opportunity? And I'll I'll give you a couple of examples. Number one, a lot of people want to quit a job because they don't like their boss. Their boss is mean or not supportive or not a good mentor. My answer to that is congratulations because you are going to have crummy bosses and clients throughout your career. It's just a fact of life. There are difficult people out there and that is one of the best learning experiences you can possibly have. I had a horrible, mean, nasty boss early in my career. She asked me how much I weighed. Okay, This is like the level of difficulty of this person. But she was incredibly smart. And I learned from her. And now, after her, it's like all downhill, right? So difficult people can be a huge lesson. Also, if you're learning about business, if you're learning about um, organizational structure, processes, if you still feel like you're gaining skills, sign up for every training program you can possibly take. You know, volunteer for projects and stretch assignments and committees, anything to not just wait for opportunities to come to you, but really go out and get them. And the third way I think you can make the most of an opportunity that's not perfect is the people you meet. If you're in a kind of position where you get to attend conferences, where you're meeting people throughout a big company, where you have a couple of mentors or mentoring opportunities, one of the most important things to do early in your career is build your network, just the relationships you have. So I think we tend to focus on the assignments of the job that you're doing, and those might not be perfect, 
But if there are any of these other things, learning opportunities, training, development, networking, dealing with difficult people, I think all of that is a reason to stick out a job. And as much as I said you don't have to stay in a job for a year, if you can find ways to advance and enjoy a job or at least make the best of it for two or three years, that's a really good track record starting out as a millennial in a generation where people think that millennials are not that loyal to employers. So it can be a real differentiator for you if you're able to show movement for two or three or even four years. Mm. So let's say you're at the place where you've been in kind of the corporate world for a while, and I know you can relate to this, and you really have got that entrepreneur bug, or at the very least, a solopreneur, you want to work for yourself, you want freedom, you want to be your own boss, and you want to make that switch. But it's really scary because you've got the security, safety, comfort of the corporate job. How do you know when it's time to go? And then once you do know, what are some initial steps that you can take to maybe make it a little less scary and a little more practical? So I love this question because it's ironic that I've built my career helping people in organizations when I myself only worked in an organization at the very beginning of my career and got out and started my own business as soon as I possibly could. So I know that feeling very, very well. If you have that instinct, follow it. Um, But what I will say is I definitely took the path of caution. Um, You know, I dipped a toe in entrepreneurship and then another toe and then another toe and then an ankle and then a little bit of my, I mean, like really, really slowly. So I worked full time, then I worked three days a week, then I worked two days a week. I kept my health insurance as long as I could. I took my employer on as my first client. I think you have to know yourself. Some people want to jump in head first, dive in head first, get venture capital money, just go all in. And if that's your style, great, go for it. My style was much more cautious. Um, So I started working uh, on a plan to start my own business probably a year before I actually did it, doing some freelance work on the side. And I think one of the most important things I did, two really important things, was I really looked into the logistics. Where was I going to work? I set up a home office um, way before I actually started. What were the tax issues? That was something I messed up early of having to pay quarterly taxes uh, for most people, understanding what that meant. Where was I going to get my health insurance? And I think really importantly, I think you really need to build a network of self-employed or entrepreneurial or solopreneur friends because I remember one of the hardest parts for me was I felt like all of my friends were at work in big offices and here I was all by myself. So I had a couple of friends who I would meet for breakfast or we would call each other for support. I think if you can start building that social network while you're setting up the administrative stuff, while you're thinking of the idea for your business, all of those things you can do before you actually kind of hang out your shingle You don't have to jump off a cliff to be an entrepreneur unless you really want to or unless you're thrown into it through a layoff. So kind of move at the pace that's good for you. But those are some of the things that I did very early on, and I think they paid off. I love that. I I really want to emphasize know yourself and know what works for you. I was the same way. I I baby stepped it. I stuck my toe in. I worked for someone else while I built my business. Mm -hmm. And and that's just who I am and my MO. Other people, I was at an event last week with um, a major CEO who hope hope maybe I'll have him on the podcast. He started the Dollar Shave Club. And just Mm. listening to his story about living in a garage with no money, putting his life saving into the business, drumming up capital, like 
awesome. Good for you. And that would have never worked for me. I couldn't have lived in a garage and put all the money, which wasn't much at the time, into it. I needed to to baby step it. So just really know who you are and do it in a way that works for you. So I just want to echo that. Thank you for that. And uh, shifting again to your last book, Becoming Boss, so many millennials are becoming a boss. They're stepping into leadership roles a lot sooner because Gen X, the 40, early 50 generation, is a lot smaller. So baby boomers are needing to be replaced. And we're seeing a lot of young people step into these leadership positions before they have like a lot of the training. And they're also having to manage people that are older than them. I'd love to touch on this. Some things that millennials, people in their 20s, 30s can do as they're stepping into leadership positions and becoming boss. And also, how do they deal with managing people who are older than them? So here was a time where research was really important to my um, writing of the book. I had the same assumption that the biggest challenge for young leaders would be managing somebody older. That was definitely a fear of mine, that someone would think I didn't know my stuff or that I was too big for my britches, and I've definitely had that that fear over time. So I started interviewing millennial leaders as I was writing Becoming the Boss, and what I found was very few young leaders thought that that was going to be a problem. They actually did not have a lot of fear around managing someone older. Where the fear tended, and I'm sure some do, but it wasn't a, a huge issue in, in my research, but where I found the biggest fear was in managing friends, in managing peers, or somebody who had been your equal who now was reporting to you. Um, and I, I found that, you know, I think with the millennial generation who've been brought up on social media and the kind of stereotypes that everyone gets a trophy in a very democratic, supportive, community-oriented generation, that it was really hard to manage peers and your friends and wanting to be social and, and be friendly and be liked as a boss. And sometimes that's not always going to be the case. Um, So I ended up writing a lot more about that issue and kind of the balance, which is very challenging of sort of pulling rank and managing somebody and and being in charge and having to make decisions and sometimes disappointing people or making a decision that they don't agree with and also wanting to be friends. And, And what I ultimately found, and I asked this question to a lot of young leaders as well as leaders of other generations, is it's a balance. And you have to find your personal comfort zone. But there's a certain point when you have to make an unpopular decision. And the best advice that many people had was you just have to say it. You know, Christine, I know that we've been friends for a long time, but I'm managing this project now. And I'm really sorry, but I need you to stay late on Thursday. I know you're going to be disappointed, but we have to get this done. And the, the sort of result a lot of people said was you kind of learn who your real friends are because if Christine is really your friend, she'll say, you know what, I get it, I'm bummed or, you know, I wish this weren't the case, but I, I totally respect that you're a leader now and I'm going to do it. And that the people who couldn't handle that perhaps weren't as good friends in the first place. So I found that just really fascinating how hard it is to be liked and also be a leader, um, particularly for women, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's so much harder for women? So many things are, right? (laughs) I think that a lot of us have succeeded or perceived that we've succeeded by being likable. And I think it's the very, 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 very old stereotype that um, women want to be likable as well as successful and that a man can be abrasive or aggressive 
uh, or ambitious and in a woman that is seen as a negative characteristic. So whereas a lot of men said, you know, they got it, maybe it's from, um, you know, pre-Title IX, you know, being more active in sports or being more competitive as children. I, I feel like I'm playing into all these gender stereotypes, but men were sort of more comfortable switching from competitor to friend. And for women, it seemed like the friendliness piece or the likability piece, and gosh, we've seen this with Sheryl Sandberg, we've seen this with Marissa Meyer, we've seen this so many times with women leaders, it's harder to find that balance of power and likability. So for mo- any women, lis- woman listening right now, because I think that you do, as, as your friend and as someone who sees you in the workspace as well, you are a beautiful example of someone who's very empowered and an expert and a thought leader, but also feminine and warm and kind. How do you do it? Thank you. That is a huge, huge compliment. Um, I do think that I have to think about it a lot. And there are definitely situations, for example, being on a panel at a conference where I will maybe tone down my opinions to be a little bit more middle of the road or cautious um, as opposed to appearing too loud or too shrill is the word that is very popular right now um, for women to be thinking about. Um, But I, I definitely do think about how I'm perceived fairly often and I'm very cautious about how I show up in the world, particularly on social media. I think it can be very easy to um, get very angry on social media and I always try to kind of temper uh, what I'm saying. But I will say one tactic that I've found very, very useful is humor. Um, And not to say that I'm the most hilarious (laughs) comedic person in the world, but I do find if things get heated, Um, or if I feel like um, an issue is getting uncomfortable, let's say in a speaking gig, I do sort of have some jokes or humorous asides that I'll use to kind of play that balance. Um, But, you know, I also very careful about the clients I take on, about the people I associate with who are respectful um, of women, of anyone who's, you know, thinking differently. Um, But occasionally you do get some tough situations um, and I try to take a breath before I answer things and and think about how I might show up. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling. It's a really, it's a really tough issue for women. um, And it's definitely something I think about actively rather than just hoping things go well. How how do you handle it? I'd love to hear what you think. Well, I'll answer that, but I want to circle back to something you said, because I, I don't know the exact words you said, but um, about kind of like, not necessarily holding back, but toning it down. some some people may hear that as, oh, well, that's not being authentically expressed. That's like not being empowered. But here's the thing it is because being authentically expressed and being a good communicator isn't about just blurting our opinions or, you know, talking the way we talk with our closest friends or at a party in a corporate situation. It's having sensory acuity. It's knowing who's my audience? You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm, I talk a lot about spirit. I talk a lot about God. If I'm facilitating a personal growth retreat, great. I'll talk about all that. I'll talk about, you know, hard things that have happened in my life. If I'm talking to a corporate audience and I'm hired to talk about, you know, workplace generational issues, I, 
I'm not going to bring God or spirit into the conversation. Is that me holding back? No, that's just me having sensory acuity to my audience or to uh, in certain panels if it's a certain crowd. And like you said, there's an opportunity to be very, very opinionated. I may not be because I want to be able to be respected as a thought leader and just share the advice, share the information that's accurate, but not go into having a super strong opinion or like you said, being shrill. So I think that's a really important distinction for not just women, but for all people. Like you can be empowered and you can be authentically self-expressed, but also know your audience and know who you're talking to and have sensory acuity. Did, did that make sense to you? I love it. It reminds me, I was talking about authenticity in a personal branding workshop uh, for job seekers. And a guy raised his hand and he said, well, you know, I want to work in business, but I feel authentic in sweatpants. Mm. And so we had to have a conversation. You can feel authentic in sweatpants while also understanding that it's not appropriate to wear sweatpants to a job interview. <laughs> so exactly. There is authenticity in different situations. I also just really, just in my heart of hearts, believe, authentically believe that, you know, you get more bees with honey, that taking the high road is usually the best strategy. And to your point, particularly in professional situations, you, know, you have to think about that. And, and I think that that's important. And, and, you know, a conversation I have with a lot of people, uh, and I'm getting this question more and more, is about how much to reveal of one's sexuality or gender identity or tattoos um, or political persuasions um, on social media, in a job interview, et cetera. And I get this also as a mother, you know, how much do I talk about my kids or how important work-life balance is to me? So all these things that could have consequences in the workplace, positive or negative. Um, and one of the things that I like to say is you have to make the decision which is more important to you. So, for example, my younger sister applied to teach English in Japan and she wears a nose ring. And I said, I think you should take the nose ring out for the interview. You know, you never know if that could turn somebody off, et cetera. And she said, if I don't get the job with the nose ring in, then I don't want it. And mm. to me, that is a perfect answer. If wearing the nose ring, expressing yourself, however it is you want to show up in the world is more important, you're understanding that there are potential consequences and you're accepting them. You know, I wouldn't apply for a job at a place that said we hate women <laughs> because right. I am a woman and that would not be authentic to me. So you have to make a decision in any situation, which is more important to me, expressing my political views or getting this job, uh, showing my anger or being perceived as a thought leader on this panel. So I think consequences are real and you can be authentic while understanding that they exist. So last question for you, Lindsay. This is another thing I see you do really well. You are married. You have a daughter who's about to start kindergarten, <laughs> and you travel, and you have a really big career. What does work-life balance even mean to you, and how do you do it? I love talking about this because I don't think enough people talk about it, and I want to be really clear that what works for me does not necessarily work for everybody else, um, but it's a combination of a lot of things. I very much wanted to be married and I very much wanted to be a mother. And I, in many ways, deliberately built self-employment or my own business so that I could have the life that I want. 
I live in New York City, which is not an easy choice for me or for anyone. And that makes travel and my client work significantly easier because so much of it is based in New York City and I don't have to commute. Um, my husband also works in the city and talks about the fact that he sees our daughter much more because he doesn't have to spend two hours a day commuting. So I think the choice of where we live is important. Um, to me, what work-life balance means is I get to make my own choices. So yes, I was in Europe this past week and I didn't see my daughter for three days and that's a bummer but we plan the entire weekend to be together. I'm taking off tomorrow afternoon, Thursday and Friday to be with her in my mind to kind of balance out the fact that I was in Europe and I want to make sure that we have some special time. I'm able to do that because as a speaker, self-employed, I get to make my own schedule. Um, it's not perfect. I certainly don't balance, you know, on a scale exactly the number of hours that I'm spending with her versus work. But what I love about how I've built my life is that I can make those choices. I can have a speech in the morning and then take off my suit, come home and play all afternoon. And I feel really fortunate um, to do that. I also have a wonderful nanny caretaker for my daughter. That's a financial choice as well as a lifestyle choice, but she's really part of our family um, and we include her in our family um, as opposed to seeing her as just a, a babysitter. Um, so that's really important too, but it's certainly not perfect. But I think it's, again, it's about being deliberate. It's about thinking, what do I want in my life? How am I going to make this work? And I think tuning out the voices who are critical. I still hear people say, you you travel away from your daughter. You have nanny pick up your daughter from school. I mean, there are a lot of negative voices out there and you just have to kind of stay true to what you believe. But I will be very honest. It can be very hurtful um, when people make comments like that. And it still happens in 2016. And um, I just want to acknowledge anyone who gets those comments because it's, it's very real as confident and happy and balanced as, you know, I might seem to be and hope I am, it still hurts when people make comments and you still have to overcome it. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I th it just ties back to, I think, what is emerging as one of the themes from this call is authenticity. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. You have to know what works for you best, both professionally and personally, and how you communicate. And Although we can take a, so many of the tips that you gave us today that do apply to the, across the board, we always have to check in and be like, what's really right for me? What really fits for me? So thank you for being a stand for that and for living that so authentically. Thank you. And and just to say, I didn't always know this. I mean, <laughs> things change over time. And I, you know, I always say I'm, I'm a, you know, maybe 20 year overnight success. This takes a long time <laughs> to like figure out what you want, figure out what's going to work for you. I mean, there is no way I knew this stuff. And I just want to say to those of you in your 20s and 30s, Christine included, people always told me that things got even better as you got older. And I never believed it because I thought, oh, they're just saying that to make themselves feel better. It's true. I just feel like every year I get older, I'm happier. I know what I want more. I'm able to make better decisions. It really does get better. And all this work that you do on Christine's show and that retreats and self-help reading, it all adds up. And um, I'm just I'm just so happy I can share any single piece of advice that might help someone because um, I really struggled when I was starting out. What would you go back and tell yourself then? What's the one thing that you think would be most important for you to hear? Work on yourself first, always, whatever that means to you, whether it's your health or your um, emotions. I've done therapy for 
two decades. I'm very happy to openly admit that I've always worked on myself. And every time you figure out what you want and what works for you, it just adds up to leaps in your career and personal life. And I know that resonates with your show. And I'm not saying it to kiss up to Christine because I love her so much. But I mean, (laughs) there is no faster way to find what it is you're looking for than to figure out who you are and what you want. And I wish I had known earlier that um, most of the work was going to be inside as opposed to outside. Mm, mm. Well, you definitely do it now. And thank you for echoing that because that is my passion. And just thank you for <laughs> thank you for being someone that I've gotten to grow with over the years. Ditto. I just adore you. And um, I think this is such a great way to speak to people through the podcast. So thank you for having me. Yes. And where do people go to find more of you? Oh, well, I'm not against self-promotion. <laughs> Um, my website is lindsaypollock.com, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-P-O-L-L-A-K. Thanks, Christine. 